Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, welcome. Uh, we're doing a show about multiple sclerosis today. We're not doing a Kion Wolf introduction because uh, even though we have some very funny people in the studio, people with really good senses of humor, this isn't a particularly funny subject. Although, as Joan Didion uh, wrote in her essay about having multiple sclerosis, having a sense of humor can really, really help. Um, but I didn't think it was our place uh, to come up with anything funny about it. We, but we are going to talk about how people live with this illness. It's, it's, a, um, it's a lifelong illness. It, uh, there is no actual cure for it. And it's a somewhat mysterious and unpredictable illness. I think that's fair to say. But I shouldn't be saying these things. I should be uh, introducing you to the guests we have. Uh, all of our guests are in the studio. And as we go along talking about this, uh, you may want to call in either with a question or a comment born out of your own experience. The number for that is 860 866-270-275-7266. We'll say that several times. And uh, you may tweet us. I think Greg Hill is in the house tweeting for us at WNPR Colin. That's where you should follow us. And uh, you should feel free to tweet right at us during the show, too. Uh, in studio with us um, are uh, two people who uh, two people with um, MS, Lynn Johnson, who is Lynn Johnson, a one of my neighbors for many, many years. That's how I, I got to know her. She's a Hartford-based psychotherapist and a teacher of meditation at the Center for Serenity. Paul O'Brien's a former actor and human resources executive. He currently runs a support group for uh, people with MS and is active uh, with the MS Society and planning April's Connecticut MS Walk. And I'm sure we'll tell you a little bit more about that as we go along here today. Uh, Mike Marks is a, a portrait and lifestyle photographer based in West Hartford. He'll be talking a little bit later about this remarkable exhibit that he's done, which really kind of was a little bit the trigger uh, for, for having the show. Reading about the exhibit, I was thinking, this is a show I kind of wa- have wanted to do for a while. I know a whole bunch of people with MS, but in some, I think those of us who don't have the disease, we don't know the disease. Uh, you know the disease if you have it, if you treat it. Uh, and uh, for those, uh, those of us on the outside looking in, we want to uh, be helpful. We want to do and uh, say the right things, and, and we want to understand as best we can what people are going through. So that's the whole reason for this show. We're going to start out with Dr. Peter Wade. He's a neurologist at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center and medical director of the Mandel Multiple Sclerosis Center at Mount Sinai Rehabilitation Hospital. So, Dr. Peter Wade, I think this disease was first discovered and given a name 150 years ago. Um, do we know today what this disease is? What is multiple sclerosis? Multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune disease in which your immune system recognizes your myelin, which is the insulation on the nerves of the brain and spinal cord, as foreign. Mm-hmm. And so because the immune system thinks it's foreign, it tries to eliminate it or destroy it, and it does through, so through inflammation. The inflammation strips the insulation off, and wherever that damage occurs, you get an episode, an attack, or an exasperation, as some patients refer to it. That causes new symptoms, and that's how MS starts, with the first episode or attack. Do, we don't know why people get MS, right? There's no real clear reason. There's some genetic tendencies. It's more common in um, women than men. About 70% of patients now with MS are female. It tends to affect young adults age 15 to 50. Some where you grew up, you grew up in more temperate climates, more common than along the equator. 
But again, there's no real clear association. I can't predict who's going to get MS. And then I can't predict how they're going to do once I diagnose it. We should say that there, uh, there's MS, and then within MS, there are sort of understood to be four different variants of the disease, right? There's four different types of MS. When you see patients, they want to know what type of MS they have. The most common type is relapsing remitting or exacerbating remitting MS. That's in about 85% of patients. These patients start with an attack, such let's say blurred vision or double vision or a weak arm that goes away after a few weeks. They go several weeks, days, months, years without attack, and then a second attack occurs, so it's an exacerbation in their remission. Those patients, about most of those patients after 15 years untreated, deteriorate into what's called progressive disease, where they don't have attacks anymore, they just slowly get worse. So that would be secondary progressive disease. A few percentage of people start with just progressive disease, where they just get worse and worse and worse. There's no real inflammation. In those patients, we don't really have effective therapy for them. That's a major focus of the research of the National MS Society, where I'm on the board here at the Connecticut chapter. And finally, there's what's called progressive relapsing, a rare form where people are getting worse but may have an attack on occasion. But the majority of patients start with attacks that come and go and are disruptive to their life. Why don't we talk to some of the patients? Everybody who's here is going to be here for the whole show. As I say, if you have questions, 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Paul O'Brien, uh, tell us uh, uh, when and how you found out you had this. Well, I found out for sure in 2005. But before that, in 2004, I was running the New York Marathon. And about mile 13, my left leg went numb. And I thought, hmm, maybe I didn't train well enough. And it was a year after that that I was diagnosed. What, what is the disease for you? In other words, in, in terms of what it, do, what it does to your life, how it affects your life, what is it? Um, MS for me, this is a family show, so I really can't say what <laughs> it is. Um, it's annoying, to be sure. And it changes the things that I want to do. So I have to think through what can I do and do that. And you, were, uh, you had your first symptom running a marathon. Today you're here with us in a wheelchair. So that's a, a major aspect of the disease for kind you. Kind of a change, yeah. Yeah. Are there, uh, first of all, I assume also good days and bad days? Yes. P- well said. There are good days and bad days. And the best question is, how is it right now? Right now, today is fine. Sunday was not so good. Mm -hmm. So it goes like that. Um, uh, I'm going to get to Lynn in just a second, but uh, before I do that, uh, Dr. Peter Wade, what what are the range of symptoms? How will the disease express itself? And and I understand it varies from person to person. It can almost be any symptom that could be a neurologic symptom, Mm -hmm. something to do with the brain or spinal cord. Often it begins with vision symptoms or swallowing symptoms. It can begin with numbness or tingling in an arm or leg. It often affects bowel and bladder function as time progresses. And about 50% of people with MS have some degree of cognitive difficulty. It can affect, impact the quality of their life and maybe 10 or 15% of people. So it can involve any portion of the central nervous system. That's the difficulty with it is it can cause almost any problem you could see. Sometimes that's why it's so difficult to diagnose initially because it's such a puzzling presentation. So, Lynn Johnson, uh, tell us about your disease. Well, Dr. Wade just said it. Uh, it was very hard to diagnose. I have 
um, primary progressive MS, which is a very rare form, and as Dr. Wade said, there's not really much treatment for it. But like Paul, I was out jogging in May of 1988, and all of a sudden my legs went numb. Mm. I was like, "What? what is this? And it wasn't until 10 years later that we were finally able to diagnose it because I didn't have the attacks that most people have. Mm-hmm. And so people thought it was Lyme disease, it was this, it was that, and finally um, concluded that it was primary progressive MS. Is that, I'll come back to you in a second, Lynn, but is that um, an uncommon thing? Or, I mean, just reading the literature that I read, uh, uh, going a long time before you get your diagnosis seems to be something that does happen. I mean, not to everybody, but... I think in Lynn's case with the primary progressive, without the attacks, it's harder to figure out because most people you're looking for attacks and things along those lines. It used to be very, very difficult to diagnose because we didn't have any tests. Mm -hmm. The original test to diagnose MS was to put someone in a warm bathtub Mm -hmm. and see if you could create new symptoms because hot weather aggravates MS symptoms. Now with the MRI scans that we have, it's much easier to see the pictures on the MRI scan that look very much like multiple sclerosis. I think we're doing better at making the diagnosis sooner with some of the ancillary tests. All right. You just stole my next question, which was about diagnosis. So you can you can now see something. I mean, it, it sounds like a, a complicated and nuanced diagnosis, though. The majority of the time, it looks like MS, and it is MS. Yeah. Um, the small percentage of people, it may look like MS, but the spinal cord doesn't show it or the brain doesn't show it. Most of the time, there's more lesions on the MRI scan than there actually are symptoms. If you came in with blurred vision and I did an MRI scan of your brain, I might see three or four lesions already. Then that would help me diagnose the disease right away. Sometimes if we're uncertain, we do a spinal tap and look at the spinal fluid, and you can see patterns of inflammation in the spinal fluid. And then we go down a list of diagnoses such as Lyme disease and sarcoidosis and other diseases that could look like MS. But most of the time, we can come up with the correct diagnosis. So, but Lynn, uh, my recollection is that you didn't have just one MRI to find this. Oh, my goodness. I think I had about 25. And for many years, I had no lesions. And then finally, they started showing up. Mm -hmm. So MS is so mysterious, and everybody's so different in the way that they progress or what happens to them. Uh, 25. I mean, I've had one MRI, and it was – until you've had an MRI, it sounds like the simplest thing in the world. It's not fun. MRIs suck. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, 25 is a lot. Let me just say one thing. This is the only sort of thing that I have to contribute to this conversation, uh, but I, I bet it's true anyway. I mean, Lynn Johnson is an unbelievably sort of cheerful and uplifting person. If you get in on, on an elevator – with Lynn Johnson, which I did frequently for five years, and you think you have problems. Usually by the time you get off, you feel pretty good just from talking to her. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and so do you – first of all, is that is – the, is the person that I used to meet on a pretty regular basis on the elevator or in the hallways of our building, is that who you are? I mean, are you able to sort of maintain a pretty positive attitude with this disease most of the time? Well, my goodness, I'm an extrovert, and, you know, who wouldn't be happy seeing you, Colin? You know, <laughs> well, I cheer everybody, up. Actually. Yes, that's, well, no, I cheer up when I'm around, you know, really wonderful people like today. But I have really, really hard days, and depression is a symptom of MS. And so I have to fight that mm-hmm. to stay. I feel you have to fight to stay who you really are, right, Paul? Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and staying who you are means doing as many of your normal things as you possibly can do, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. So you've been on a walker since that, since I've known you. How long has it been the case that you've had that? Uh, walker isn't really the right word. What do you call the, the thing that you use? It's called a rollabout, yeah. officially. And, you know, his name is Henry, you know, because <laughs> okay. he's my best friend. He yeah. goes with me everywhere I go. Um, at first, when I first had symptoms, I didn't even need a cane. And mm. then I progressed to a cane. And then about 1996, when I was diagnosed, or right around then, I went on the walker. And I hope I can, or the rollabout, and I hope I can stay on that. Um, that's my prayer. Yeah. And and so for you, and we're going to talk a little bit uh, pretty extensively about how, how the disease is treated, what drugs work, and things like that. But for you, you've kind of chosen a different course. Uh, I've read that I mean, nobody really knows, I think, but I've read that as many as maybe even 50% of the people in America, in the U.S. with MS, sometimes in addition to a normally prescribed medical course of, of, of drugs, are working with some kind of alternative therapy. You've done a lot of that, right? Talk about how you've approached all this. Right. It's been, it's been my whole thing. I mean, I've used many things that have helped me. I work with a wonderful naturopathic physician, Dr. Mila Gruber, with homeopathy, I do yoga, I do something called emotional freedom technique, which uses acupressure points, has been extremely helpful. Um, I meditate, I um, pray, I do everything I can think of. Um, and when you say you do yoga, uh, um, once again, I mean, obviously some of your physical abilities are significantly restrictive. I mean, even just sort of watching you get from the roller into the chair you're sitting in right now, that was, it took longer than it would take a lot of people to do that. So in terms of doing yoga, how, how does that go? Well, before this happened, I was a yoga teacher. Mm -hmm. So I had, I think when you have something in your body that you know, it helps mm -hmm. you maintain it. As long as I do yoga every morning, of course I can't do the poses like I used to, but I do everything that I can, and it's very helpful. Mm -hmm. Paul, what's your treatment like? I've also done yoga, mm -hmm. and um, what I've found is that it's mind-body connection, mm -hmm. and you do what you can. Poses are kind of out for me, but there are many things that we can do. Treatment for me is I follow, I respect Lynn's choice, but I also... I'm on one of the standard uh, disease-modifying drugs. Yeah, and and for both of you, I sense, and Paul, I know you a little bit from Facebook. I mean, we've been sort of in communication on Facebook for three or four years, I think. Um, it, it, you know, actually, let me just hold that there, and let me go over to Peter Wade for just a second here. You know, sometimes we talk about the mind-body connection. Uh, medical science sort of knows it's there but doesn't know what to talk about or how to talk about it. But with MS, the sense I'm getting, once again, reading and, and, and trying to understand the disease because, in fact, stress, mental stress, can, can trigger the disease the way I understand it. I would imagine this mind-body connection, doing the things that you can do to make yourself feel happy and calm are really important here. I, I think that that's true in all diseases, not just multiple sclerosis. I think in, you do studies on patients with multiple sclerosis, 30% of people respond to a placebo. Mm -hmm. I think the act of doing something for yourself, if you believe in it, does something for yourself. I, it almost doesn't matter what you're doing. So I think that's an important positive attitude is very important. She mentioned depression. Depression is actually more common in MS than in other chronic illnesses. It may actually be part of the disease, and we treat that with medications as well as therapy. So there's all sorts of different complications and consequences of the disease that we try to deal with at the Mandel Center where we have comprehensive care to help people with more than just the medications. 
Um, in terms of the medications, I, I think Paul talked about how he's on one of the standard medications. Is there a standard way of treating this disease in terms of the the, the drug regimen, or is is it? I mean, I feel like it's kind of a snowflake the disease, disease that everybody has it differently. So I'm thinking maybe it gets treated a little bit differently. In the patients we can treat, we can treat people that have the exacerbating remitting type of disease. The medications we have decrease the chances of the next attack mm-hmm. by a statistically significant amount. They make the MRI scan new spots quieter, and by doing so, delay disability. So all the medications do that. They're delivered differently. Some are pills, some are infusions, some are injections. And so different people have different medications. And I tend to pick the medication that I think is going to be most effective, and at the same time, the one the patient believes in is there and are going to be able to tolerate. If they don't choose one or it doesn't work for them, we can move to another medication. And it's very exciting. Over the past several years, there's more and more medications. When we first started this, there were no treatments. The first treatments were injections in the early 1990s. We've now moved. We continue to use the injections, but we're also moving to oral therapies. There's three oral therapies that are available. We have infusion therapies, and these significantly change people's lives because with less attacks, you have less disability and more likely to have a normal life. You know, uh, Paul, my sense of your personality type just from my limited contact with you is you're kind of an activist in some ways, and, and I think we live in an era I mean, anybody who just saw the movie Dallas Buyers Club knows we live in an era where patients can communicate with one another much more effectively through the Internet and and can sometimes lobby for changes that they want, uh, can sometimes press uh, organizations like the FDA to see if uh, they can get medications that they think will be effective for them more swiftly. Um, What's your overall sense of of this picture? Um, Are the drugs you you know about and and hope maybe you can use uh, becoming available to you fast enough? Two things. One is research. Research is just going like crazy. As Dr. Wade said, there were just a few medications years ago. Now there's eight, nine, something like that, FDA-approved medications. And um, for awareness, as a matter of fact, in just a month, we're going to have MS Awareness Day activist day at the state capitol. And so we encourage our legislators to be on our side and approve funding for research. You know, Lynn, you made a decision not to use pharmaceuticals, right? You're, you're Well, actually, if I had relapse remitting MS, I'd be very happy to try them. But the truth is, what, is there one medication now FDA approved for my type? Ampira or there's no medication there's no medications to treat progressive disease. Right. The progressive disease is more of a degenerative or rusting disease. The drugs we have suppress the inflammation. And so putting her on medications that suppress inflammation if she doesn't have any would be of no benefit. Mm-hmm. There is a medicine called Impira, which it doesn't matter which kind of disease you have, it helps you walk quicker, faster. And so it's been shown to improve ambulation in patients that have assistance with walking. So that's a symptom medicine as opposed to a disease treatment medication. Right. And I considered that, but one of the side effects is, is seizures, which really scared me. So that's a, that's a problem, too, is that you have to look at the medications and then look at the side effects and then decide what to do with your doctor. And so you sit down with your doctor and you discuss the risks and benefits of the medication and make a decision if it's right for you. Exactly. 
All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking about MS and how people live with MS, how MS gets treated. Uh, we want to come back and talk about this photo exhibit and, and about this photographer who decided to spend quite a bit of time meeting and photographing uh, people with MS. Give us a call if you have a question, 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. I'll tell you, for a conversation about a pretty serious disease, these people are having a lot of fun. Um, as I said, people here have very good senses of humor. Our number, if you want to be a part of this conversation uh, with either questions or comments, 860-275-7266. We'd love to hear from you. 860-275-7266. So, Mike Marks, uh, we haven't talked to you yet. Uh, you're a portrait and lifestyle photographer based in West Hartford. Uh, you've got an exhibit up. First of all, tell us uh, uh, just the bare bones about the, exist- the exhibit. Where is it? How can people see it? Uh, right now, the exhibit is at the JCC, uh, the Mandela JCC in Hartford. Um, 335 Bloomfield Ave. Um, it's up there until March 3rd. Um, and it is uh, a collection of 45 residents that I've photographed throughout the state over the course of three years. Um, and it's, it's, it's a wide range. I mean, it's a, it's a wide range. And, uh, you know, we didn't expose too much of the project when we first started it because it really needed to be seen together as a group. Um. Well, we're talking about the. I want to talk about that wide range, but before we do that, how did you wind up doing this? In, in uh, what, this feels like something that maybe got bigger uh, than you initially thought it was going to be. Certainly, yeah. Um, I mean, basically, uh, you know, long story short, uh, I got. You know, I don't have a direct connection with MS in my family, but my connection with the society started through cycling. I'm a cyclist, and I just, uh, you know, new to West Hartford years back, I decided to photograph one of their charity bike rides and just donate my time. Through then, uh, you know, after that, I worked a little more with them and um, came across a book that National put out in the early 90s about people around the the country that are diagnosed with MS. And no one from Connecticut was in the book. I mean, it was everything from Ohio to Georgia to California. Um, And I approached them and said, I I would like to do something like this on a local level. I mean, the number now I think they're saying is, you know, 6,000 residents in the state are diagnosed. So I said, you know, people really need to know that this is happening next door. Um, and, and so uh, you did this, and you wound up meeting a wide range uh, of people, a wide range of people, b- both in the way that uh, the differences in the way this disease expresses itself, but also just in who they are. I, you want to tell like one or two quick stories of, uh, of I mean, some of the people that, that you met are, are sitting right in this room, but you want to tell some, some other stories? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the one thing we knew going in is that you know, and the title of the show is I Am a Mosaic because we knew each of, the, each of these individual images are very strong on their own but tell a whole other story altogether. Um, so when we were going in, I worked with myself and, and Karen Butler from the MS Society, um, and we would, you know, see who, who would be great and who has the stories to tell that would work well um, and who, you know, would convey the images we need to convey. So, um, you know, one image that comes to mind um, you know, there's a woman, uh, Sue Newberry, who is in Newtown, Connecticut, and uh, she's always had a love of, you know, horse riding. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, we photographed her that day. We actually had to reschedule her shoot, uh, as they mentioned in the first half of the show, that heat sensitivity is a common symptom. Um, you know, in the summer months, we had to reschedule. It was just too warm out. Um, we photographed her in back trails in her house and everything. And the photo we ended up using was actually, um, you know, we were packing up. My assistant and I were packing up, and she was about to put... Uh, her horse back in his pen 
and she kind of just had the harness off and she was kind of just hugging his head. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he was a very large horse. And I turned around and like it was happening and I was like, forget everything we did today. Like this is this is it. Mm-hmm. So I just quietly asked her, you know, just, you know, Sue, just stay there for a moment. And, um, you know, it occurred to me that like, you know, she said she does that all the time because that possibly could have been the last day she's able to ride. I mean, she has a special harness and, you know, she has a retaining wall in her driveway in which she has to climb up a little bit to get on the horse. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, the bow of his back was about five and a half feet up. So, um, you know, she's still riding. She's still doing what she wants, and she's grateful for it, but she takes, like, one day at a time. This is kind of an interesting thing, too, because um, I think probably some people remember Ann Romney uh, during the campaign, uh, the wife of Mitt Romney. She has MS. She rides horses, um, and she talked about it being therapeutic. And I think people initially thought about that and said, well, what's she talking about? But there is something called hippotherapy, right? Yes. Yeah, we have a, the patients do therapeutic riding. It's a very, very beneficial thing. It helps balance. It helps coordination. It's all sorts of alternative therapies can be a benefit for patients like that. Yeah, and I've also I guess the um, movement of the pelvis during hip, during riding a horse is has mirrors the 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 movement of walking in some way that's helpful, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, we got a lot of people calling up here, but so I want to get to some phone calls. But but Mike, you want to tell one more story from from the photo exhibit? Yeah, you know another another uh, kind of uh, there's a couple actually um, from Norfolk, Connecticut. They uh, they they've always had a passion for riding motorcycles, and it got to the point where Linda was not able to ride on her own. So what uh, Mo, her husband, ended up doing was you know getting a bigger bike so she can ride in the back, and they had a little trailer made to match the bike that actually carries her wheelchair in it. So that's what, you know, that's what they do. They're still able to ride. They're still able to do what they want to do, you know, which is the image that we ended up um, photographing. And uh, now her balance is a little more affected than when we photographed the image about mm-hmm. two years ago. Um, so I just learned that he actually made the investment in a nice actual trike. Um, so, uh, you know, if any uh, unsudden weight shifts from her in the back would be a problem, they're no longer a problem now. So, but just a really, you know, powerful couple and just really, you know, uh, inspirational. I mean, regardless of the disease, just, you know, someone has these limitations, but they're going to do whatever it takes to, you know, still be out there and live the life they want to live. Well, let's grab a few phone calls. A lot of people calling in, 860-275-7266. We'll start with Alicia in West Hartford. Hi. Hi. What have you got Thanks to say? Thanks for taking my call. Um, I was diagnosed um, in July. Um, it started with uh, optic neuritis. I did see Dr. Wade at the second opinion, and um, he was quite insightful and uh, helpful um, and told me I should be on one of these um, medications and uh, tested me for a virus that if my showed in my body that uh, one of the meds was probably not good to take called Tisabri, I believe, and it's an injectable, so... Then I went back to my original doctor, and it took months to decide what to put me on, and vision never did come back. I did a five-day steroid injection, uh, solumedrol in the hospital, and the vision came back, but I couldn't, cannot go back to work. I am a hygienist, and I wouldn't want to be at the receiving end of a sharp tool mm-hmm. uh, without 20-20 vision in that eye. So, um, you know, it's just been since July, not working. It's been a nightmare. Finally, two weeks, I'm on my third week now of a medication 
called uh, Texadera. It's an oral med, and I have had some uh, side effects, uh, nothing that I can't tolerate, some GI problems and some flushing, and I can look like a lobster at times, and it's killing my gut a little bit, but I can tolerate it. But what's happened now is I have developed optic neuritis in my good eye, and I'm concerned that uh, did this do something to my immune system, and is it not agreeing with me, and should I get off of it? I just ended a three-day infusion of uh, Solumedrol at the hospital yesterday, and uh, I still have pain in my eye, and now the acuity, uh, I probably should not be driving a car. Red lights look like pale pink lights. Brake lights look like running lights. Um, I'm probably a menace to the road, but I live alone, and uh, it's just, you know, it's scary. Alicia, it does, sound, it does sound scary. You know, I want to ask, uh, I mean, obviously, um, I hope you can get help with that. We probably shouldn't be giving you medical advice on the radio without seeing you, but we, we might be able to say a few other things, and I'm going to turn to the two patients uh, sitting in the room here. You know, I read this uh, uh, prior to doing this show, this essay by Joan Didion uh, about uh, her own diagnosis and sort of everything that she went through. And, and she talks a little bit about that whole process of coming to terms, you know, about how you, how, how you process this information and how, you know, it, it, it changes. Uh, it's a bit, it was a bit of a roller coaster ride, I think, for her and for anybody. So, I don't know, Paul, if you wanted to tell Alicia anything about sort of uh, well, about coming to terms, about how, how things are going to change or not change in the days and months ahead. Certainly, I can't necessarily speak specifically about Alicia, but I know that for myself it was acceptance was very important to accept that, yes, this is what I have, but it does not define me, and to figure out what I can do and go from there. So it sounds like having a doctor in your court is very important. Absolutely. Lynn, is there anything else you wanted to say? Well, Alicia, I'm so sorry. Um, the first year of, of MS, of the symptoms, you're right, it's a nightmare. It's so hard. And as I was listening to you, what I would say is what's really important right now is to get support to surround yourself with loving people, uh, with people that you can talk to, because it's it's going to be a while before you can get to acceptance, because h- how can you accept what you don't know? Mm. It's like, it, it's so scary at first because you don't know what's happening. Mm. It's so mysterious, and doctors can help, yes, but they don't really know what's going to happen. I hope Dr. Wade has some <laughs> comfort for you here. But I just really hope that uh, that you'll get support uh, in some some place somewhere. Doctor Wade, did you want to say anything? I think that she needs to continue to work with the physician she's working with to try to make the best decisions for her. It's a process. You try medications. If that's not the right one for you, or you're having side effects, then you need to work closely with your physician and the team to try to make the best decisions you can to continue to improve your quality of life. I want to grab another call here from uh, Jim in New Haven. Hi, Jim. Hi, I have a quick question. Um, I know there's been some very positive results with medical marijuana and MS, uh, a number of studies. 
I wanted to know that now that um, Connecticut is going to allow medical marijuana, will this be included in the um, medicine that's available to people with MS? Um, I did some reading about this as we got ready for the show today and, and found some interesting things about this, but I'm going to defer to Dr. Wade here for a second. Marijuana is approved in Connecticut for if you have a medical indication for it, and multiple sclerosis is one of the approved medical indications. So what happens is you can sit down with your physician and you can fill out an application form to the state of Connecticut, and then you'll be issued a marijuana card, which will allow you to purchase marijuana from the dispensaries once they're available. I mean, reading some of the clinical literature, it seemed like the jury was a little bit out about this, right? I mean, it, I, it's, it's going back to something you said earlier, 30% of people respond to a placebo. Um, it was hard to see any study, any piece of scholarly research that I could find anyway that really confirmed uh, a link between uh, improvement and marijuana that, that would probably exceed anyway that placebo effect. I, I think there's, there's not gold standard research on this, but mm-hmm. it's been decided by the state what we do at the center is someone has used marijuana and they tell me that it helps certain specific symptoms, that it's spasticity, mm-hmm. pain, things along those lines, then I will fill out the card to allow them to get it. I'm not prescribing it for them. I'm just allowing them the opportunity as per the, the laws of the state. Um, as we go around here, too, I wanted to just come back to you for a second. Mike Marks is the person here uh, who took the photographs uh, of 45 different diagnosed patients here in Connecticut. Um, how did – I mean, t- I think for a lot of people uh, standing on the outside looking in at, at the community of people who have this disease, it's a kind of mysterious thing. And and how did your perception of it change? It's, it was a three-year pro- project, right? How did your perception, your understanding of, of what this is? I mean, I, I was even listening to you talk off the air, uh, and obviously you've gotten very knowledgeable uh, about just sort of on an anecdotal level uh, about what people go through and, and what this disease is. I don't know. How, what's the disease t- to you today as opposed to what it was three years ago? Uh, because there's so many different varying degrees, it's, it's hard for me to even say like one thing, like what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing I knew going in is, you know, this when I approached the MS Society with this idea, it was really curiosity-based too because, you know, I know people that have MS that may just have, you know, tingling in some limbs and versus, you know, someone that is in a wheelchair or walking assistance and, you know, well, what, you know, what are the common things and what are people doing? So, I knew going in, we wanted to say, well, how are you living your life right now? Mm -hmm. So, and just as a photographer in general, I need to remain biased. I need to go in without any preconceived notions or like how I feel about something. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely changed a lot. I mean, there are some people even, I never thought that this project would actually help people that are already diagnosed. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you know, we had the opening reception this past weekend and it was just overwhelmed with the turnout and how people came up to me and just, you know, seeing people that I photographed two years ago and then them seeing their picture on the wall. Um, You know, as far as uh, my specific understanding of the disease, um, I think kind of what Lynn touched on before is a lot of people that have had acceptance through support through their families and, you know, realizing that uh, it, it really doesn't have to be the end of the world if you don't want it to be. And you still need to get out there and strive to do what you want to do uh, and not let it get the best of you. Um, you know, uh, I'm thinking back to Alicia's call, Paul, and maybe one thing that we didn't talk about exactly all that much is our support groups. 
how important or how useful do you, you – you're very involved in MS support, right? I facilitate a support group in Hamden. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what does it do? I mean, what, what do people it's – a, it's, it's a place where – a safe place where people can come and talk about what they're experiencing and share ideas and mostly just um, be together with other people that know where you're coming from that can say, oh, yeah, I know that. Oh, yeah, have you tried this? Oh, yeah, think about this. And so seeing my group together is really wonderful for that. It, it's Actually, I'm going to describe a few calls here, and um, we're talking about uh, how people live with MS. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the medical horizons, or lack thereof, uh, and some calls are specific to that. Here's Ralph calling from Hebron. Hi, Ralph. Hi. Um, I'm a uh, former spouse caregiver. My wife passed away uh, about seven months ago of progressive MS here at home, but uh, she went from relapsing admitting to progressive, so she went through all the drugs. All they did was slow progression, and she'd build up her immunity or resistance to it, and then she'd have to jump to another one. And uh, Ty Savory worked for her for a while. Then they, after a couple of infusions, they took it off the market. It was really bad. I'm just wondering out of curiosity if there are any promising new clinical trials out there now because all this other stuff is just it slows progression. There is no cure. That's the four-letter magic word for me. I went through living you-know-what. All right. With yeah, that's it's a, a great point. I mean, it's the four-letter magic word, Peter Wade, for everybody, right? I mean, we'd all like there to be a cure. I think cures are different for different people. Um, a woman that has MS and has a baby, her cure would be maybe a vaccine to prevent her child from having MS. Mm-hmm. Someone in a wheelchair, their cure would be to walking better. Someone with their first attack, never having another attack. So a cure is a different thing. I don't think we're ever going to have a cure to reverse significant damage. I don't think we're going to be able to repair great damage to myelin. I think more the cure is to find out what the trigger is to cause this and maybe to immunize patients against that or to find the genetic patterns so that you can tailor drugs specifically to certain genetic patterns of disease. There's a great deal of research going down at Yale with Dr. Hafflin and his work in the genetics of MS. What are the specific patterns of genes and what type of diseases are they associated with? I think that's the forefront is that kind of scientific approach to the disease. You know, we did a show uh, a few weeks ago about um, HIV, which is a very different kind of disease, but um, one of the things that became clear um, as we got into the show is that more than I had understood, early diagnosis is incredibly important with AIDS. The sooner you get to it, the better the results are. Is it the same with MS? I mean, obviously, it's a hard, it's a difficult kind of, different kind of disease, different kind of disease to diagnose, but getting there early, does that help? When I was first diagnosed with MS, we didn't make the diagnosis until after you'd had two attacks because we didn't have any treatments. Now the approach is as soon as the person has the first attack, if their MRI scan looks like MS, then we know they're likely to have another attack and develop the disease. Mm-hmm. So we now treat very early what they call clinically isolated syndrome. I call it monosclerosis. You have your first attack, you have MS monosclerosis. Mm-hmm. We can now use medications to prevent monosclerosis from turning into multiple sclerosis. So we're very aggressive with these medications. We want to stop the disease as soon as possible because the sooner you suppress the inflammation, the better prognosis the patient has. All right, let's uh, grab a call here from Joyce, then we're going to take a break, then we'll finish this conversation. The hour is flying by. Um, So uh, Joyce in Harwinton, hi. 
Oop, I think she might have actually hung up or something. She had a good question, though. Um, let me see if we can reestablish contact with Joyce. Call back if you got hung up on or if anything happened. If not, I'll ask the question after the break. Our number, 860-275-7266. Time is of the essence, so uh, give us a call right now. We'll be back after this break. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Tess Aronson and Anna Novak. Katie Talarski is the executive producer, and Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Sean White. For photos, show pages, and links, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, all the ways love destroys us and pieces us back together. Back to Colin. Yeah, tomorrow's show is uh, specifically about uh, modern love. Uh, we have two authors on, including Daniel Jones, who edits the very popular Modern Love column in the New York Times. He has a new book uh, in which he sort of synthesizes some of the ideas that uh, have developed over scanning, I think, 50,000 submissions to the Modern Love column. Uh, anyway, right now we're talking about MS on the number 860-275-7266 if you uh, want to uh, call in and, and ask a question. Um, and let me I, actually, I had Joyce all queued up and we lost her, so let me just go right back to Joyce right now. Joyce in Harwinton. Hi. Hi. Um, I wanted to say I have relapsing remitting MS, and I did switch doctors a couple of times, and I want to tell the woman who called in with the optic neuritis not to give up. Um, you might want to try different doctors, different approaches. Um, my doctor is in Manhattan, and he's at the International MS Center, and he's doing very, very encouraging research for people with primary progressive MS. Um, what he's doing, he went to the Vatican to talk about stem cell research last year and the importance of it. And he, what he's doing is he's extracting bone marrow from the sternum of a MS patient, and then they grow the stem cells in the laboratory and inject them into a person's spine, into their fluid. And he's found um, that they have found repairs are happening, and it's given people a lot of hope that in the future, some of the myelin can be repaired and the connections uh, connect, you know, the disruptions and the connections connected again. Um, this is a man, his name's Saud Sadiq. He's an amazing, amazing man. He devotes 24 7, 365 days a year. This man is so committed to finding some hope. And I, I just want to tell people, you know, whoever has primary um, progressive MS, just to keep an eye on that because it's really hope for the future. Peter, wait, I'm going to, um, obviously, something like that is a grail, right? The idea that you could actually, I don't know if there's, as you would say, gold standard research on, on that yet, but um, something that would actually repair some of the damage. The goal with stem cells is, one, to either repair the damage by having cells grow in the spinal fluid that can re-insulate the nerves, and that's one approach, but that would be just fixing the spinal cord. 90% of the damage is in the brain, which doesn't do much there. And those are very small clinical trials that need to be pre pre reproduced in order to show some benefit. I mean, that's, that's an exciting option, but I wouldn't get a bus full of people and head to New York for that. I don't think that's going to be the answer. I think a, a different approach that we need to take is the comprehensive approach in that you help people deal with the consequences of the disease, with physical therapy, with diet, with medications, helping the people deal with the consequences of the disease. At our center, at the Mandel Center, we find a great deal of benefit in using physical therapy, occupational therapy, acupuncture, 
lots of different types of researches in helping people deal with the consequences of the disease as well as just trying to chase the next best medication. And, and I, I, my sense also is that, you know, in all of the ways that are reflected in, in Mike's exhibit, that this, this is a snowflake disease. It manifests itself a little bit differently from patient to patient. You don't even always know what the core team is that you need, right? I mean, it depends on the patient. Every single patient's disease is different, and it varies with time. And so it's good to be followed by a team of people to try to help you deal with the consequences of the disease. We're talking about uh, MS. I just want to ask you one more question, which is you alluded to this in the last segment, and I know that you wanted, uh, uh, in terms of patients, the focus to be on, on Paul and on Lynn. But you talked about your own diagnosis. So you're, you're working in medical science in uh, the field of a disease that, that you have, and I, I don't know that you can very easily compare it to not doing that, but, but, but what's that like? How, does that, how do you suppose that changes you as a clinician? I think it's, it makes it easier and harder for me. At the same time, I understand what people are doing. Patients come to see me. I can, they can explain something, and I get it. I understand what optic neuritis is. I understand what weakness is, double vision. I've had all those symptoms, and so it creates kind of a bond. And at the center, we try to focus on what I think would help me, so we'll try to help other patients. I think that the last seven years I spent at the Mandel Center have been the best seven years of my practice because I do feel that I'm able to help people more because of my personal experiences. Um, let's grab a call here from Jennifer. This is something that uh, was also alluded to uh, just re- uh, just a few minutes ago when when uh, Doctor uh, um, when Doctor Wade was talking about sort of what would a cure be to, to any given person. So Jennifer, um, you're actually in uh, the the Mike Marks exhibit, right? Yes, my husband and I have a photograph um, from a few months ago when we were pregnant with our first child. And, and so. Um, uh, this is something that was alluded to, the idea uh, of uh, a mother uh, pregnant uh, uh, and the mother has MS. Talk about how that was for you. Well, at first it was scary. We, I was diagnosed um, just you know, before our one-year anniversary when we were thinking about you know, trying to start a family, and we were blessed um, to be able to end up in the care of Dr. Wade and the Mandel Center. And that was actually one of the first questions that we talked about was, you know, are we going to be able to have a family and have children, or is that, you know, vision that we had when um, we got married going to be shattered? And Dr. Wade assured us that, you know, it absolutely was possible um, and luckily agreed that, you know, while I understand the importance of being on medication for now, we could delay it. Um, so we were able to, you know, become pregnant pretty quickly, and we um, had my daughter in December, and so far everything's been great. It was definitely nerve-wracking, worrying about what could happen no postpartum, because um, there's a lot of research that shows that symptoms can come back. So far, everything's been wonderful. Um, and, you know, as of right now, I've still delayed treatment due to breastfeeding. But our plan is that, you know, around the one-year mark for my daughter, you know, Dr. Weed and I will start to talk about what we're going to do for treatment at that point. But it's so far been a great experience, and it's important for people to understand that even though this can be scary, if you're a woman of childbearing age, um, that you still can have a family. And it also means that a cure is even more important because for me, like Dr. Wee alluded to, what that means is my daughter not having to have the same diagnosis as she grows. Um, I'm looking at the Mike Marks photo of you right now. It's, these are all available on our website, to which, by the way, we will link from our website to, to the photos from Mark's exhibit. For those of you from uh, Mike's exhibit, for those of you who can't get over to the JCC to see it, uh, but you're a very attractive couple. I bet you have a very beautiful baby. Uh, oh, so thank you. Congratulations uh, on that. So let's make sure that uh, time doesn't slip away without us uh, mentioning uh, a few other things. Paul, you've mentioned it once or twice already, but there is a, a big MS event coming up. You're in charge of promoting it right now. 
Just twice? <laughs> Just twice. Oh, my. Uh, the MS Walk is coming up. There are a number of sites statewide, and we have, I think our goal is 15,000 walkers, and we've raised money, most of which goes for research, which, as you've heard before, is really going up pace. It's great. So if somebody wants to sign up or sponsor somebody or, or something like that, what do they do? Call me right now. <laughs> I'm shaking you down before we leave, Colin. All right. So but you can just go to the MS Society website? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Karen, yeah. ctfightsms.org. Okay, ctfightsms.org. Karen Butler sitting here in the background. She's not on mic. But ctfightsms.org, that's where you're going to go to find out uh, about how to get involved uh, in that walk. Or just stand someplace where Paul can find you, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and that'll happen. I have a cup to give you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. We might be able to work out a trade here. Um, you know, Lynn Johnson, we're running out of time here, but um, I, I, I'm trying to frame the question right now, but it, it, do these kinds of conversations happen a lot with people? You know, the, you, you know a lot of people, and they know that you have MS. Do people feel comfortable having the kind of, kind of conversation that we're having here today if they don't have MS and, and, and you do? Are you more comfortable talking about it than people are asking you about it? Well, I feel pretty comfortable talking about it. I'm also a psychotherapist, so mm. I see people with MS yeah. and other, um, you know, diseases. Uh, it's really wonderful, you know, Going to Mike's exhibit on Sunday was so exciting to actually get to talk to all. Like, I just met Paul, and I met Jennifer. I met all these wonderful people, and it really uplifted my spirits. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the more that we talk to each other and the more that we support each other and encourage each other, the better we'll feel. And I think that that's what we can aim for now. Anything that makes us feel better... Let's do that. All right. I just wanted your voice because I enjoyed it so much to be the last thing that people heard, besides me saying that. Um, So uh, we're done. Uh, Thanks so much for tuning in today. We'll be back tomorrow with a show about love.